All right, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. I want to preach a message I brought a few years ago here. I think it's good we be reminded of it also during that time. We obviously have new people come into the church and uh, that never did hear the message. And I'm, I'm not so uh, proud to think that you remember every message I preach anyway. And if I didn't tell you that I had preached it before, most of you, even who heard it, would not remember it. Amen? Amen. I'm fishing now. Fishing. <laughs> All right, notice chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I want to preach a message that I've entitled, Always Right. Always right. I have a saying that I've, I've given many, many times. I can't remember the last time that I said it. Maybe last Sunday. Um, but it's this. I believe what I believe so strongly that if you believe differently, you're wrong. Now, you say, well, that sounds braggadocious. Not at all. It's the truth. I believe what I believe so strongly that if you believe differently... You're wrong. By the way, you believe the same thing. You believe what you believe. And if you disagree with me, then you think I'm wrong. The truth is, everybody's that way. That's not new. Just because I said, I can't believe you said it. Well, you're the same way. I mean, it's amazing over the years how many people have disagreed with me on different things. And they've been very bold at saying they disagree. Why? They thought they were right. Well, I don't think they were right, but nevertheless, you you get the point. Now, it seems like the Apostle Paul always thought he was right. Now, you got to think with me tonight. If you don't think with me, you're just going to be lost out in left field someplace, okay? Uh, First of all, he thought he was right when he was wrong. He thought he was right about how you got saved. After all, he gives us a testimony of that. In Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, when he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. That they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Well, that was Paul before he got saved. And he believed it so strongly, he had dedicated his life to persecuting believers, people of the way, people who trusted Jesus of Nazareth. 
He even blasphemed God when he thought he was serving God. The point is this. He thought he was right when he was wrong. And he also thought he was right when he was right. Now, this can get pretty deep. Think with me for a moment. When Paul thought he was right when he was wrong, he was still wrong. The fact that he thought he was right didn't make him right. He was still wrong. And when he thought he was right, when he was right, he was right. What makes the difference? The Word of God. That's what makes the difference. Here's the thing about the Apostle Paul. Everybody thinks they're right about what it is that they believe. But the Apostle Paul was teachable as long as that teaching came from the right source, it had to come from the Scripture. The Scripture is what corrects us. As a matter of fact, God says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, tells us what to believe, how to believe right. And we're going to cover that. Uh, according to doctrine... Uh, let's see, what's next? It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof... Tells us where we're wrong. Correction tells us how to get right. Instruction in righteousness tells us how to stay right. That the man of God may be perfect or complete. Everything that he ought to be. That's what the scripture does. Now consider with me for a moment. And here's the point about Paul. Is that he always stood for what he believed was right. And I know it frustrates us when some people stand for what we believe is wrong. But at least they're standing for what they believe. It doesn't make them right when they're wrong. But at least they've got the courage to stand for what they believe. And let me throw out a a saying to you that I'd like you to remember. We're not going to repeat it over and over again, but it's fairly simple. It was Curtis Hudson who used to say, um, there are certain things that we ought to fuss about. And there are certain things we ought to fight over. And there are certain things we ought to be willing to die for. Wisdom is knowing which is which. You, want to, you don't want to die for something you should just be fussing about. And you don't want to just fuss over something that you should be willing to die for. Wisdom in life is knowing the difference. Now, if you think about that, let that settle in and it'll help you. Now, consider the Apostle Paul always thinking he's right. Go over to the book of Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at a number of scriptures tonight, and you're going to have to keep up with me because we got a lot to cover. I'll try to get you out of here before 1130. As they laugh nervously, notice beginning in verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses... Ye cannot be saved. But when therefore Paul and Barnabas, look at this, had no small dissension or disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. When these people came along and they added something to salvation which is not so, you'll notice the terminology that is had here that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension or disputation with it. Paul didn't put up with it. It wasn't a matter of debate. He was standing loudly 
and firmly for the truth. I mean, after all, there's a lot of key doctrines in the Bible, but there's none more key than what saves a person. You've got to have down what saves a person or you'll die and go to hell. There's only one way to be saved. There aren't 10 ways to be saved. There aren't 10 gospels that save. There's only one gospel that saves. And as Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The point is, Paul had salvation down. He wasn't budging. You see, church is not a place where we have a free, open discussion of ideas. It is a place where God's people come together to hear a man designated by the church to proclaim unto them the word of God, not to allow just anybody to bring any error in on the same level with truth. Once you've done that, you have diminished truth. You should always stand for truth. If you were to read Paul's messages in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 28, one of the things you get is Paul believed he was right. Oh, Paul, you just always think you're right. Well, sure he did. When he wrote to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to the Corinthian church, there was a man in that church who was taken in adultery with his father's wife. And they were proud of it. They thought... Having a man like that in the church showed their open-mindedness. And Paul says, you're puffed up when you should be mourning. And he told them to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, I know people, matter of fact, we've had to do church discipline a number of times in the 30-some years that I've been here. And almost invariably, I'll hear either by a letter or anonymous note or something from somebody who just doesn't think that's loving or kind or right. I'm sure that Paul probably heard the same stuff. Not to compare myself with Paul, but if I take a similar stand to what he took, I'm going to have some of the similar opposition. You understand that? God has spelled those things out. Paul felt he was right in calling on them for church discipline, and he was right. Now, we know that because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and God had that recorded for us. He thought he was right in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Notice this. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Now, look at this. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Oh, I don't think you ought to mention names. Paul did. And he put it in the eternal word of God. He did not pull. Well, how can you call what they said blaspheme? By the way, Paul also called what he did when he was lost blaspheming with his persecution against the church. He called it that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He told the truth about it. He thought he was right when he rebuked Peter. Now imagine this for a moment. Peter could have said to Paul, Hey, Paul, when you wanted nothing to do with Christ, when you had nothing to do with him, and as you were turning against him, I'll remind you that I got to preach one of the first messages on the day of Pentecost. We had 3,000 saved, and I walked with him. Who are you, Paul, to... Come to me and find fault with me. But it was a matter of truth and error. Peter erred. And as a result, he got called on the carpet by Paul. And that may have been Peter 
But Paul was sure that he was right. And by the way, Paul was right. Peter was wrong. I could preach on that whole situation for a long time. There's just an awful lot there. So I get the feeling that Paul believed the scripture to be true. How do you know that, preacher? Because over and over again, he says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. He doesn't say, as Spurgeon said. He over and over says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. And he simply quotes from the word of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 declares, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But the things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Do you realize that God doesn't tell us everything about everything? He tells us everything we need to know, but he doesn't tell us everything about everything. He doesn't tell us everything about prophecy. He tells us what we need to know, but he doesn't tell us everything about prophecy. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. The secret things, they belong to him. But the things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children. Why? So that we'll obey God. Because that's where the emphasis is is to be. Not to learn some special bits of numerology. Where the number one means something and two means something and three means something and four means something and five means something. There's one number God gives us the meaning of in the scripture and that's the number six. Oh, I've learned all that those numbers are supposed to mean and stuff, but I don't find a verse that says that anywhere except the number six. It's the number of man. But I've heard people get up and preach a whole series of messages on the special meaning of the numbers in the Bible. Look out! What about just the clear meaning of the English words? That ought to be enough for God's people. Bible says, yea, and all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, under the glory of God by us, written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Although Psalm 119, 128 may not have been his life's verse, I have no doubt that the Apostle Paul believed it. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. We need to get back to the Bible. Not to special commentators, but to the Bible. What does God say and what does he say clearly? By the way, Paul did have one compromise that he made. It's in Acts chapter 21, at least the only one that I can find. And that's when he takes an offering back to the church at Jerusalem. But there were people in the church that didn't like Paul. And they had been spreading a rumor that Paul was teaching everybody not to have anything to do with the law of Moses, that the law of Moses was no good. And so James says to him, now what you need to do, we've got six men that are ready to go to the temple to make a vow. You go down there and make a vow with them. That'll take care of it. You know what I've found over the years? Anytime you set about to appease certain people that don't like where you stand in certain areas, you never appease them. They just find something else to complain about you. Because Paul gets down there, he's doing What these complainers ask him to do. He is at the temple and a rumor gets started. Who started it? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there was a rumor started that he had taken a Gentile into the temple area. And the people, once that rumor got going, they were so mad they took him up. They wanted to kill him and he was saved by some Roman soldiers that came down. And you remember on the next day when he was taken before the Sanhedrin. 
so that the soldiers could find out what this was all about, that there wasn't one person from the church. Pastor James was not there. None of the deacons were there. None of the six men that he went into the temple with to take the vow with them, none of them were there. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at my first answer, no man stood with me. He was there by himself, spent the next four years jailed, two in Caesarea, two in, in Rome, all because he tried to appease some people. That compromise didn't help him a bit. Now, I'm not saying he was wrong in doing what he did. I'm just simply saying that's so out of character with Paul. And it sure didn't come about to any good either, except the fact he got to preach to people at Caesar's household. So I want you to notice some, some, some things about Paul. Number one, he was convinced that the scripture was right. A couple of verses. Go over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Notice verse 4. Romans chapter 3. God forbid... Yea, let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified. Notice, underline it, as it is written. I would encourage you as you go through your New Testament next time, find just at least in the writings of the Apostle Paul, how many times he says, as it is written, or something similar. If you look at the next chapter, you get to verse 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. You see, he believed the scripture. When he's making a point, he just simply goes to the scripture. Here's what the scripture says. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Turn back to the book of Psalms, Psalm 19. And I say all scripture. I'm not just a New Testament scripture. I'm not just a New Testament Christian. I'm a Bible Christian. I believe that my Bible and that the Bible is made up of 66 books written by over 40 different authors, but all of them guided by the Holy Spirit of God to put down what God already had in heaven. Now notice something about this scripture. He says in Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect, converting the soul. Testimony of the Lord is what? Sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is what? Pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is what? Clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You see, this book is God's book. The Bible says that no scripture is of any private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't care who you are. Believe me, there are people in churches who believe that the Bible's wrong in some areas. They're willing to say, they're willing to throw in uh, evolution. They're willing to say that there's a big gap somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 because they're trying to fit in the dinosaurs. Now the dinosaurs lived and they died. And they've been dead for a while, but it wasn't 125 million years ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And over and over again, it says, and God said, let there be, and it was. Whatever he said, let there be. And it was just exactly what he said. 
But Paul was convinced that Scripture was right about anything that the Scripture says anything about. In the Scopes monkey trial that took place over in Dayton, Tennessee, William Jennings Bryan was the one who was standing up for creation and the Bible. And it was, what was the guy's name? That Darrow, Clarence Darrow, the attorney uh, that was supporting the teacher who had begun teaching evolution in the public schools there in Tennessee, which, by the way, was against the law. And Darrow tried to make fun of Brian, said to him, he said, I suppose you believe that everything in the Bible is true. And William Jennings Bryan said, it is, and I do. And he said, so, I, so then you believe that Jonah ate the whale? He said, no, sir. He said, but if the Bible said Jonah ate the whale, I'd believe it. Do you have that kind of commitment to thus saith the Lord that Scripture is right? Not only that, he concluded that God meant what he said. Going back to Romans chapter 4 again. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham, I notice the wording here, believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now what he's proving is in chapter 4 is that salvation is by grace through faith, through believing, and it is not of works. For notice he goes on to say, Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace but of debt, but to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is, his faith is counted for righteousness. So he's making a very clear case here. But his example for this New Testament doctrine to show you it's a Bible doctrine all the way through, he takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Now, some people believe that Abraham got saved when he left Ur of the Chaldees. There are a few problems with that. We've got this statement here, number one, that says he became justified. He was justified when he believed the promise of a son in chapter 15, not the promise of a land. The land doesn't save anybody. The son saves. Not only that, when he left her of the Chaldees, if you'll remember God's command, he was supposed to leave his family behind and go to where God was sending him. When he left her of the Chaldees, he took his dad with him and took his nephew Lot with him. And they didn't go to the promised land. They went to Haran, north of the promised land, and they stopped there until dad died. In chapter 13, after going down into Egypt, he comes back up to the promised land. He's still got Lot with him. And they end up separating. God really doesn't deal with Abram again until... Lot and Abram are separated. In chapter 15, God promises him a son, a seed that Paul makes a great deal of in the book of Galatians chapter 4. And as he says right here, and it's also quoted, by the way, in the book of Galatians, but you'll notice he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. I believe that's where he got saved. Now, thank God that he partially at least obeyed the Lord early on. But according to Paul, proving that salvation was by believing God, believing his promise of his son, he proves that it was at that time 
that it was counted for righteousness to Abraham. Now, knowing the Word of God in context requires that you make some decisions. Now, you say, preacher, why context? Where are you coming with context? You can make any document, any document, the Bible, any document, say anything you want it to say if you take things out of context. Let me prove it to you. In Psalm 14 and verse 1 and Psalm 53 and verse 1, you have the same very clear statement. It says in both of those passages, very clearly, exactly, there is no God. In both places, there is no God. But now, is that what it's saying? How are you going to know what it's saying unless you look at the context? Well, the context of the verse itself, the Scripture says in both of those verses, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You see, those verses are not saying there is no God. They're saying that the fool says there is no God. So that's why when you hear a bit or a piece of a verse or a half a verse that's taken out of context, that seems to, you know, rock your world because it makes some very clear doctrine that you've always believed obsolete. Go back and look at the context of what's being said. That will clarify it. <coughs> That'll make it clear. Also, in first, uh, let's see, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, the Bible says very clearly, this is an exact quote, let him that stole, steal. Now, you understand, somebody's been a thief all their life and they suddenly get saved. Well, if they stop being a thief, they're going to go hungry. So, no wonder God says, all right, let him that stole, steal. Is that what it's saying? Well, of course not. We already know that without even knowing the context because we know the Bible. Isn't that right? But what, is, what does the verse say? The Bible says in that passage, he says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands. You've got to know the context. As a matter of fact, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. When I say we believe the Word of God and we follow the Word of God contextually, this is what we're talking about. What is it saying? Notice in chapter 3, verse 21. It says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now let's stop right there because the Campbellite folks, they believe in a doctrine called baptismal regeneration that you are not saved. As a matter of fact, any good Campbellite that knows what Campbellite believes, well, if you were to ask them what's the gospel, their answer would be, you've got to believe, receive, uh, you've got to believe, receive, repent, be baptized, and hold on to the end in order to go to heaven. Well, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's very plain, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. But they say, no, you've got to be baptized in order to have your sins taken care of. And they like to quote the part of verse 21 that says, baptism doth also now save us. But is that what it's saying? First of all, just looking at the verse, it says the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. Just stopping right there. We'll go on to the rest of the verse in a moment. 
the like figure. That word figure is used in other places in your New Testament. For instance, in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, Adam is referred to as a figure of Jesus Christ. Leads me to ask a question. Is Adam Christ? No, he's not. He's a figure. The word figure means a picture. He is a picture of Christ. What is baptism? It's a picture of the gospel. The Bible says that we are baptized unto his death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, we also shall walk in newness of life. Baptism pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was wounded uh, for our transgression and was raised again for our justification. Thank God. It's a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel in picture. But then for those who think that it washes away your sins, look at the next part of the verse. It says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. How is it the answer toward a good conscience toward God? Because the first thing that Jesus commanded the disciples to do after they led someone to Christ was to baptize them. It's a matter of obedience. When I have parents come to me and they have a four or five-year-old child that has taken Christ as their Savior, and they might ask me a question like this, Pastor, do you think we ought to go ahead and have them baptized now? Because I don't think they're going to understand the full meaning of baptism, should I wait? Just a moment. Every child understands obedience. Jesus said to do it, and you do it, not to add to their salvation, but it's a matter of a good conscience toward God. It's the first thing he said to do after you get saved. If Jesus said to do it, then you do it because Jesus said so. And as they grow in the Lord, they'll understand more and more about what baptism is. I mean, at what point do we finally think that they're spiritual enough to finally get baptized? If they got saved, baptism's the next step because God said so. And that ought to be enough for us. So you understand that this is important that we stand for God's truth according to what he says in the scripture, according to context. So don't get led astray because people misuse half of a verse to make it say something that it's just not saying. Uh, you take um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. Uh, verse 34. It declares, let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that when any female walks into the door of the church, they're to shut their mouth. Almost said something else. (laughs) They're to shut their mouth and not say anything until they leave the church. Is that what that means? Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted, permitted unto them to speak. Context. What's the context? Well, if you've read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's got two subjects that he's dealing with. Number one, he's dealing with tongues, which were simply languages. And number two, he's dealing with prophesying. And he gives us the definition for for prophesying in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 14, when he says, He that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. That's just simply preaching. Women are forbidden to speak in other languages, and that would be in, among the church assembly in a service. 
and they're forbidden to preach. They're not allowed to do it. And we know from 1 Timothy chapter 2, I suffer not a woman to teach and usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. They're to listen. By the way, if they have questions, they're to ask their hubby, which means, hubby, you ought to be a student of the Word of God so you can answer their questions when they ask you one. Amen. Now, you're getting quiet on me here. I hope I haven't lost you yet. I know there's a lot here to it. But you always take it in context. It does not mean that women can't walk into the building or into the auditorium and talk to one another. Obviously, they can. But you see, then we get down to this matter of tongues. In Acts chapter 2, God gives us a very clear definition of tongues three times. It is called the languages of men. How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? You can't get any clearer than that. Bible tongues is not a jibber-jabber. It's not an ecstatic utterance. It is a bona fide language of men. And if you understand that when you read through verse four, or chapter 14 of the book of 1 Corinthians, man, it just, the cloud is lifted. That takes care of it. That's why, by the way, we still practice obedience to that. When we have a foreign speaker get up and speak, we always provide an interpreter, which is what 1 Corinthians commands we do. Because it won't do anybody any good if nobody understands the message. All right, so we understand Scripture. Scripture is absolutely authoritative. Contextually, in the passage that it's written... Look through it. It makes things so very clear. When the Bible says, be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does it mean? Exactly that. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, I can remember several years ago talking to a, well, I I talked to a few people at Tennessee Temple when I was there. I said, could you give me a Bible verse that speaks against races marrying outside their race? And I had a teacher that was a very, very bright man, a very intelligent man, had a lot of respect for him. And he said, first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, be not unequally yoked. And I said, wait a second. Regardless of how you feel about the subject, you can't use that verse for that. It says, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. The whole issue with Israel, they were not to mix with the outside people because they had a different God. It had to do with their religion, not their race. And you see that throughout the scripture. Now, back then, I was asking people, I was asking people this question. People really got mad at me. Don't get mad at me. I'm just going by what it says. Well, that professor said to me, well, I believe that means economically, socially, and all that. But it doesn't say that. How in the world, right? If you say it, well, I, I just don't like it, fine. Say you don't like it, but don't tell me the Scripture's teaching it when it's not teaching it. We would like all our prejudices to be backed by the Scripture, wouldn't we? And that's just not always true. Hmm. Some of you are thinking real hard. Now, he believed right to stand for the truth no matter what it cost him. See, he had no idea what it might cost him to withstand Peter to the face 
in Galatians chapter 2. Now, thank the Lord, Peter evidently got right about it. But Peter, you know, could have caused a great deal of problems for Paul. And he calls himself, Paul does, the least of the apostles. But he didn't do that. So when, I, when you look at Scripture, Scripture is authoritative, and we ought to stand for what he says in the Scripture contextually. In Acts chapter 15, as we read the passage, there was no small dissension or disputation with those people. He stood, well, I don't argue about matters of religion. Well, then you don't have much religion. There's some things you stand for. Matter of fact, I was at a Christian school meeting. This is a few years ago now. I, I won't mention the association that I was happened to be a board member in. And the conversation came up about the King James Bible. And there were some guys there who were graduates of a school over in South Carolina, and they were making fun of King James Bible believers. And so they were talking about a particular man who had written a book called Touch Not the Unclean Thing. They had printed his book on the home, but this thing, Touch Not the Unclean Thing, had to do with the King James Bible. That he said, now it's time, it's been 20, 30 years or whatever, or 40 years of study. It's time that we start separating ourselves from people who don't believe the King James Bible. So they were talking about not printing that guy's book on the home anymore because they didn't like his stand on the King James Bible. Well, I sat there for about 10 minutes and finally I just, I figured someone was going to say something. I raised my hand and I said, fellas, I'm King James only. Well, they quieted down. I mean, it's not like they were scared of me or anything like that. But I think they thought that everybody felt like they did. No, I didn't. I believed the King James Bible. And I wasn't going to sit there and let them just make fun of other people who believe the King James Bible. I was going to stand up and say, that's what I believe. Well, it's amazing. Then several different guys around, well, I do too. Well, I do too. Well, I do too. Come on, guys. Don't have to wait. But the truth is, if we believe right, we ought to stand for right. Scripture says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. You want to know one of the reasons why there's so much compromise among our independent Baptist brethren today? Why they're willing to put up with some of the most absolutely ridiculous, godless, blasphemous doctrines is because they wouldn't take a stand for just right and they get by with it. When it comes to this matter of Calvinism, it's shocking how many guys would say they're not Calvinists, but they read John MacArthur and even preach John MacArthur from their pulpit. And here's a Presbyterian Calvinist. Man, I don't even quote Charles Spurgeon anymore. Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist, but he wasn't a Calvinist either. If you read any of the books on, on uh, Calvinism or against Calvinism or whatever, the Calvinists claim him as a Calvinist, and those that aren't Calvinists claim him as not being a Calvinist. The truth is, theologically, he was a Calvinist, but he didn't believe it in soul winning. And he even said a number of things where he said, if Calvinism is this, I don't believe it. Well, so I don't really know where he's at, so I'm not going to quote him as an authority. Because he's not one. Now, bless his heart. He did a lot of good. I know back then. That's not the issue. 
The issue is truth, and we're only clouding the issues to let him get away with certain things. Now, that's why I've said, how many times have I said it? The God of the Calvinist is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Calvinist is a God who doesn't love the world. He only loves those that he elected. That's all he loves. And when God says world, he doesn't mean world. He means elect. When God says any, he doesn't mean any. He means elect. When God says all, he doesn't mean all. He means the elect. Now, when you've got to go through your Bible and change a whole bunch of very clear words to fit a doctrine that is not taught in the Scripture, to back some doctrine that a man made up who, when he made it up, was not, didn't even claim to have been born again. I'm sorry. I don't have any time for that stuff. I'm not putting up with it. I'm going to speak out against it. I don't care if they're Baptist. I don't care if they're independent Baptist. The God of the Calvinist is not the God of the Bible. Now, you say you just think you're right. Well, that's what I'm preaching on. Get this. Let me say that to teach something as truth that you believe is wrong is dishonest, deceitful, and despicable. To believe you are right and teach it as a maybe is cowardly. In James 5, 12, the scripture says, let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. Not let your yea be maybe. There are definite solid truths in the word of God that are not open for discussion. God said it. That settles it. Period. Period. Now, you always think you're right. You think that you're right and thinking I'm wrong. Yeah, but you got the same problem. You think I'm wrong by thinking you're right. Well, how do we settle this then? What saith the scripture? That's how it's settled. Not what did Dr. So-and-so write in a book. What does it say? What does it say clearly in the scripture? That ought to be enough for us. Well, I don't think that you should say others are wrong because they disagree. Well, why not? They're wrong. I mean, they think I'm wrong and they're willing to say so. So why shouldn't I be willing to say they're wrong when I know they're wrong? Because I know what the scripture says. Jude 3 and 4 declares, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. May I say that in the last 10 years especially, I feel that that has been my main job as a pastor. And I think it has a lot to do with the rise of the Internet and that so many people are on it. And they, listen, most Christian people are not very discerning in who they follow, what quotes they read. We lost a few young men out of Madison Baptist Church because they got on unwise websites They read some things by some upper-ups in the religious world that sounded good, and they started quoting them and then following those men, and those men happened to be Calvinist. They were not discerning. Listen, child of God, everything out there is not for consumption. You need to be grounded in truth so you can spot error and take a stand. Think about the Apostle Paul as he did have a teachable spirit. Look at verse 5. 
And back here in Galatians chapter 2. Well, I'm doing good. I'm going much quicker than I did this morning. It says, to whom we, get, we gave place. This is chapter 2 of the book of Galatians, yes. Uh, verse 5. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he was... For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. He was not against having himself checked out by people who were leaders that were there following Christ before him. He looked at it. But see, here's a man who himself followed the Scripture and followed it completely. The Bible says, and no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Well, what's your interpretation? It's not of any private interpretation. There aren't 30 different ways to do this. What does he say? Take it for what he says. Now, there might be some supposing. Because, as I said, God doesn't tell us everything. Like, for instance, I know there are whole books written out on the typology in prophecy. And some people have got it down. They know when every thunder takes place, every trumpet takes place, every bowl takes place. I mean, every man, they've got it laid out. Clarence Larkin wrote a tremendous book many years ago. Doesn't mean he was right about everything he had down there. Uh, but truth is, God doesn't tell us everything. Like, for instance, take the four horses of the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Starts out with a white horse, and you got three other colors there. And, man, there are some guys, they've written whole books on what the colors of the horses mean. And I know what it means. It means that was the color of the horse. That's enough. Now, I believe the first one's white. I personally believe the reason it's white is because Satan is a great counterfeiter. That's not Christ on that white horse. That's the Antichrist on that white horse. And there are several things in that passage that make that clear that it's not Jesus Christ. He's wearing a man crown, not a diadem crown. A Stephanus crown, not a diadem crown. And there's some other things that are in that passage as well. But then there are other things, you know, that you look at and you can suppose, but as a preacher, the honest thing to do is let people know you're supposing. That you think this is the way it's going to happen. Uh, Since I've been saved, I can't tell you how many times I've heard prophecy preachers try to figure out where the United States is in prophecy. Because you don't find it in prophecy. You don't find the United States mentioned. Now, Jack Van Impey, who was a matter of fact, his whole ministry was based on prophecy preaching. uh, He believed that the United States was the young lions of the book of Ezekiel. That's really a stretch. I don't get that. But since God doesn't say, I don't think any of us can say authoritatively, first of all, because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know the situation of the world when Jesus is coming back. He might come back today. But regardless of that, we just don't know. But in, for instance, I believe it's in the first part of 
Revelation, um, where it says that there was silence in, uh, in heaven for the space of 30 minutes or a half an hour. I heard one preacher say that proves there are no women in heaven. That may be pretty convincing, but I, I don't think that's what that's teaching. All right. But in chapter 8, the star Wormwood falls on the earth. I don't believe that's a nuclear weapon. I believe it is some giant meteorite star, something that's falling from earth. And it takes out not just a third of the oceans, it takes out a third of the rivers. Now, as I look at a map, North and South America together equals about one-third of the land masses of the world. Because of that, I believe that the star Wormwood probably falls on North and South America, which is why you don't find it mentioned. Now, I can't prove that. That's what I call an Allisonism. In other words, it makes sense to me, may not make any sense to you, Makes sense to me, and we get to heaven, you'll either be laughing at me and say, ah, you missed that one, preacher. And I'll say, well, I told you I didn't know. <laughs> or I'll say, why didn't you people listen to me? I had it all the time. <laughs> but we know that that star can't fall on Africa because the kings of the south have got to come up for the battle of Armageddon. It can't fall on Russia because Magog's got to come down from the north for the battle of Armageddon. 250 million Chinese have got to come across the Euphrates River for the Battle of Armageddon. And obviously, it can't fall on the Antichrist domain, which would be Europe. So the only thing that makes sense to me is North and South America. But I can't prove it. I try, at least try to be honest and tell you when I'm not sure. Some guys want to preach their supposings as... This way it's got to happen. No, no. Just be careful about that. Well, I've got so many different things to say, but I'm going to wrap this up. He didn't compromise. Paul didn't, even unto death. He could say, I finished the course. I have kept the faith. Right to the end, he was faithful. Where do you compromise? That's the question. And when do you stop compromising what you compromise? I didn't say change. Because if you find out you're wrong about something, you want to find out then what's right about it and believe what's right. Thank God the Apostle Paul was willing to stand for right when he found out right was right and he'd been wrong. But when do you compromise? For instance, what about the doctrine of Christ? Jesus Christ is God. He's 100% God. If your Christ is not God, then you don't have the Savior. He's God. There's no compromising on that. Uh, Christ is the only way to heaven. Do you realize you can believe on the Holy Spirit and die and go to hell? And you can believe on the Father and die and go to hell. You have to believe on the Son in order to go to heaven. You say, why? If all three of them are God and they're not three, they're just one. I'll tell you why. God said so. Well, I don't understand. Well, there's a lot of things you don't understand. I don't understand all that. Listen, I do not understand how I can talk in this, this little thing right here. I can talk with this right here. And my, what I say goes in to the, that little bitty thing right there, travels down this wire right here, goes into this little box right here, and somehow flies through the air 
back to there. And they can turn it up or down. Not only does it go into there, but it also goes either through the air or through some more wires into the radio room and goes into another box. And that sends it up a pole that's outside the back part of the building. And that pole then sends what I'm saying as I'm saying it, sends that all the way out to where the Baileys live to an antenna that we have there. And then that antenna, it goes in, then it goes right back out again, and it goes out over the air, and people who happen to turn on their radio to 107.9, they hear what I'm saying almost at exactly the same time I said it. I don't understand it, but I use it so I don't have to scream so loud. Now this, but now this is simple. This is simple. And smarter people than me have put it together. I've seen it work. I know know it works. That's enough. Well, if God created all that is out of nothing, if God says something that I, I don't get, I can still believe exactly what he said because I know who said it. And that ought to be enough. God said it. Part of the problem with the Jehovah's Witnesses is that the reason they don't believe in the Trinity, it doesn't make any sense to them. They, they, can't, they can't understand how Jesus can be God and be at the right hand of God at the same time. That doesn't make a bit of sense to them. Now, it's not so hard for me because I realize he's God. He's whatever he says he is. That just settles. I don't need a detailed explanation of how. I just know he is. I take God at his word. And so that's, that's where we stand. We don't compromise on those things. We believe what God said. Now, having said that, uh, salvation only by faith without works. You cannot lose your salvation. There's no compromise on that. Man, we're not changing that. We're not allowing for, well, maybe sometimes a person, no, it can't. If you get salvation, you get the real thing, you can't lose it. And if you don't get the real thing, you're just as lost as what you were before you got the false thing. Not only that, baptism is always by immersion. And baptism is only for believers. It's not for lost people. Fornication is always wrong. Makes no difference how you feel about one another or how good it may feel, or how entwined you may be. No, fornication is always wrong. Adultery is always wrong. Homosexuality is always an abomination before God. Always. There's never a time when it's, well, okay. Well, I don't see that as being so bad. Saved people do not stay... uh, Uh, here's the statement I want to make. Saved people do not stay in a church that preaches a false gospel. Now, this is one that starts getting tough here. You say, where do you get that, preacher? All right. If you wouldn't ask, I wouldn't have showed you, but I'm going to show you now. Turn over to John chapter 10. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Notice, beginning in verse 1. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door 
is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now look at this. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of a stranger. You see, I believe that a person who, let's say he goes to some cult church, somebody, someplace that preaches a different gospel. Let's say he hears a gospel message on the radio, he gets saved. And he doesn't know any better, the only church he's gone to is that cult church, so now he's saved, and he goes to that cult church. He can't stay there. Now, he might be there for a service, but since now he's saved, he belongs to God, he's not going to hear the voice of a stranger. What did Jesus say he's going to do? He's going to flee. He's going to get out of there. As a matter of fact, a guy that was an assistant pastor for me many years ago, Bob Mosley, what a great guy, uh, and a good assistant pastor when I pastored in Manchester, Tennessee. Uh, and his testimony was this. He got saved watching, of all things, a Billy Graham meeting on TV. No, it wasn't that. It was Jerry Falwell on TV that, that he got saved. Now, his wife had died, uh, and he was lonely, and he had been searching. Well, while, you know, discouraged and down, he was watching Brother Falwell on TV, and he got saved. Well, immediately, he knew he ought to go to church, and he said, well, what? but he didn't know, where am I going to find a spiritual church? And it seemed to him, just looking at the Jehovah's Witnesses, man, they're going out knocking on doors all the time. They're pretty sincere. And so he went off to a kingdom hall. But he walked in, and he heard the guy start to preach. And immediately he turned around and walked out. Why? Because he'd become a sheep. And when a stranger speaks, the sheep have to flee. That's what they do. They know not the voice of a stranger. Understand this. In this day, when we are all called on to be tolerant of everybody. It's funny. No one is urging people to be tolerant of us. Have you noticed that? But we are supposed to be tolerant of everybody and everything. But God says we're supposed to stand. Find the truth. Stand upon it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I know we spent a long time on this tonight. And Lord, I've tried to make it as clear as I possibly know how. But since we're dealing with spiritual truth, only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. Lord, help us to be a people of conviction that stand for right, stand for truth. And Lord, wherever we find ourselves in the wrong, may the Spirit of God stop us and correct us to be what we should be. And Lord, we'll thank you as you move upon our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.